Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to our worship time. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, right at the beginning of the New Testament, hold your finger there, Matthew 6, and then turn two or three pages to the left. I want us to start with the last verse in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. You got that? And so I do want to welcome those here in our celebration service, those in our summit service I was able to worship with a moment or two ago, and all those who are watching online and on our television broadcast. I'm ready. I'm ready for our worship time as we open God's Word. I do want to wish you happy Father's Day uh, for all of our fathers who are gathered with us this morning or watching with us this morning. And I want to pray for our fathers but I want to pray in the spirit of Malachi 4, 6, the last verse in the Old Testament. So let me read that to you. The scripture says, and he, speaking of the Lord, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Let me pray. Father, you tell us in Scripture uh, that one of the most important things for a people, for a church, for a family to experience the blessings of God is that the hearts of the fathers are turned to you and to their families. And so, Father, today I pray that you'll protect the hearts of the fathers in our church, in our community, And Father, that you will turn those hearts towards you and you will give those fathers hearts for their children and hearts for their family. And Father, I pray that the men in our church and community can be a catalyst for a revival, for a work of God that is unmistakable and impacts every person in this church and in Nacogdoches in the coming weeks and months. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now turn to Matthew chapter 6. We have been focusing in recent weeks on the school of prayer. I'm not even certain how many weeks we've been doing this, but it's a long time. And I know that many people are thinking, doesn't he have anything else he can preach on than prayer? And eventually we'll get there. But this week, and if the Lord allows one more week, I want us to wrap up the school of prayer. Our hope has been uh, from the very beginning that we not just learn more about prayer, that we not just have a better grasp on the theology of prayer, but that we might pray, that we might be better prayers because of the things we learn in these two or three months in our school of prayer. And so we started by really laying a foundation and talking about some of the most important things we need to know if we're going to be people of prayer. And then we talked about the secret of prayer. And I really wish at the end of this, I could circle back around and re-preach that message because it really could be a good bookend to this whole series. What is the secret to being a great man or woman of prayer? It is to pray. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, keep praying and don't quit. The people who pray best are the ones who have prayed the most and the longest. If we'll just continue to pray, then we will become good at praying. 
So then we began to talk about some of the models for prayer. And we said that we would learn three models in this series. We, we wanted to take a very practical approach, and, and we've tried to do that. The first model we looked at we called CHAT, C-H-A-T, how to have a chat with God. Now I wanted to begin with this one because this is the way I most often pray each morning, but also because the elements of this really give us the foundation of all the other ways that we've learned to pray. So C stands for confess. I begin my prayer time each morning with confession. I confess to the Savior, I confess the sins that I've been guilty of since I've last prayed, and I ask for his forgiveness. H stands for honor. So I spend some time just bragging on God, talking about his greatness, his holiness, his beauty, his strength, his power, his knowledge and wisdom. We honor God. And then A is when we ask. And so we ask for ourselves, we ask for those closest to us, we pray for our country, we pray for our church, we pray for our pastor, hopefully. We ask things, and then finally, I end my prayer with thanksgiving, where I, I brag not just on who God is, but what he has done for me. I thank him for the blessings that he has shown me. Thanksgiving. So that's, that's model number one, C-H-A-T, have a chat with God. And then last week we talked about something that was new to many people. We talked about how to pray the Bible. And I got more feedback on that message than all the other messages combined perhaps. Uh, so many people excited about how that has changed, at least in the short term, has changed their, their focus and their practice of prayer. And so if that's you, I've got good news. Praying the Bible really is a learned skill. And if you have appreciated, if you have enjoyed praying the Bible just in these last few days, if you'll continue, this will be a real treasure in your life and it'll help you to be better at prayer. And then we said through the whole series that we would save the best for last and we would end with the third model, the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer that Jesus has given to us. And so if the Lord allows, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on this. Today we're really just going to tip our toes, so to speak, in the Lord's Prayer. I want to show you something that's, uh, that's really important right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. And then next week we're going to be very practical. And I want to show you how to take the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, some people call it. I'll tell you the difference next week and learn how to use that as a tool, as a model for our prayers, how to pray uh, the Lord's Prayer. But I, I think the best way to begin our approach to this is to ask the question, what is the premise of prayer? Uh, have you ever thought about how unusual it is, how odd it is, if you will, that God has created this relationship the relationship that we have with him that includes us having access to God in prayer. Now that may not seem odd to you because we've been praying for so long, we are so familiar with prayer, but I think if we'll just step back from the familiar, we will have to admit that it's really odd that the creator of the universe, when he creates all that we know of, and he creates all of these people down through the years, down through the centuries, that he would choose as the creator of the universe to give me and you unfettered access to him. That's just not what you would expect, right? Or we expect it because we're sort of on the receiving end, but, but this 
had to have been a cosmic surprise. There's no other asymmetrical power relationship that you can point to where there's, where there's this unfettered access. You think about the human relationships that, 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 that are power relationships. And so in the days that there were kings and the king or the queen ruled over a country, did the people in that country had unfettered access to go to the king and share with the king or ask of the king anything they wanted at any time that they wanted to ask? No, that would, that would not have even been something that his subjects would have expected or even dreamed of. Of course, if there's a king, then there are people and there is this gulf between the king and the people. And it can't just be simply crossed whenever one of his subjects has something to say. We don't have kings today, but we have presidents and, and governors. And so today we're citizens. We have a president. But can we just reach out to that president any time we choose? If we have something to say, if we have a request that we would like to make, no. In fact, you try to call the Social Security Administration or the IRS and, and you see how hard it is to talk to anybody in the government, much less the president. There, there, there's no way that I could just pick up the phone at, at, at three o'clock in the morning and say, listen, Prez, I've got a few questions to ask. No, and, and further, we don't expect that, right? I don't expect to be able to reach out to the president whenever I have a, a need or a concern because he's the president and I'm a citizen. If we can look at almost any relationship, you think about a judge and the person who's been accused. That, that accused man, that accused woman can't just reach out to the judge whenever and say whatever and request whatever. No, that there, there is this limit to that relationship. But God has created this relationship. The sovereign God of the universe has created this relationship where me and you just just parts of his creation can call out to him, can capture his attention, can pray and speak to him, address him anytime we want about anything we choose. That is amazing. So why is that? Why would God do something like that? How do we explain that? Well, I think the answer we can find right here in Matthew chapter six. I want to begin reading in verse five. And while I'm reading, I want you to look for that reason. Why is it that God gives us this access? It seems so unexpected and undeserved. So why is it? Well, look at verse 5. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. So there's some kinds of praying that don't have anything to do with God, right? People are just praying for their own benefits or so that people will see them or so that they will be able to focus or some sort of transcendental meditation. There are all kinds of prayer that doesn't have anything to do with God. That's not Christian prayer. But he says in verse six, but when you pray, so our prayer is different, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Our prayers have a focus. They have an audience. Look at verse 7. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they will be heard by their many words. So he says the power 
is not in the words that you pray. It's not some magic formula. It's not a spell that we're casting. No, the power is in the God to whom we pray. And then look at verse 8. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. The father is the focus of our prayers. And then look at the next verse. It's the first verse of the model prayer. We'll stop there today. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. So do you see there the foundation of prayer? Why is it that we can go before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? How, how come we have this kind of relationship that is so undeserved, that is so um, surprising? How is it? How is it? Well, I think to find the answer, you start with just one word in verse 9. And I hope you're looking at your Bibles because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Look at the first word of verse 9. It says, therefore. Or your Bible might just say, then, then, or therefore. Now that's, that's a hinge word that really connects the instructions about prayer that you see in verses 5 through 8, and then the model prayer that you see in verses 9 through 13. The hinge, the connector between those two is this word, therefore. Now what is it referring to? It's saying that you can pray, verses 9 through 13, we can pray the model prayer, we can pray any prayer because of what you read in verses 5 through 9. We can do the prayer because of the truth of the previous verses. Because of the truth of the previous verses, therefore we can pray. So what's the truth? What is he referring to? What makes it possible that we can take our request to the king? I think it's one thing. Look back at verse 8 with me. You see it through the entire passage we read, but we'll start here with verse 8. He says, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Why can we pray to the creator of the universe because he's more than a creator. He is our father. That's the foundation of prayer. And, and, and I really anticipated today in this message, walking through the model prayer and teaching you how to use the model prayer in your own prayers. But I don't think we can, I don't think we can just fast forward past this. The only reason we can pray is that he is the father. He is the Father. Think about this. If God were only the Creator, there would be no prayer, right? If God had just been the one who created, there would be no prayer. There's, there's nothing that connects prayer with creation. God could be the Creator and still not have an opportunity for us to communicate with Him. If God were simply the Creator, there would be no prayer. If God were simply sovereign, if He simply was the, the ruler of the universe, there would be no prayer. If God were just the king, there would be no prayer. Because you could be the creator and the sovereign and the king, none of that requires prayer. But here's the good news. God is the father. And father implies relationship. Father implies love and care and concern because he's the father. That's why we can pray. 
when we think about the fatherhood of God, I think what we see here is, is perhaps the most important link that we can focus on and that we can understand that'll bring the motivation we need to embrace prayer. So l- let me just take a moment and talk about what it means that he is the father. Uh, that's a good place to begin. And, and then we'll talk about how that impacts our prayer. But what does it mean that God is the father? Well, it means several things. First of all, it means that God is the father of the son, Jesus Christ, right? When we say God, the father, Jesus, the son, we're talking about a relationship between the father and and Jesus. So God is the father. He is the father of the son. So let's take a moment and and just see if we can understand that. Now, the Bible word or the Christian word that we use for this is the Trinity. Now, we could spend eight or ten weeks just talking about the Trinity, so it's going to be hard to answer all the mysteries in four minutes. But but let me take a shot at it. What does the Bible say about the Father and the Son? And so you see on the screen a graphic. We'll we'll explain in a moment, but let me give you the, the key pieces to this. First of all, the Bible clearly teaches that there is one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, listen Israel, the Lord our God is is one. The Bible says it a hundred different ways, there's just one God. But the Bible also clearly teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So you got that? One God, but the Bible says the Father is God, the Spirit is God, the Son is God. The Bible also clearly teaches that these are not parts of God. And this was a A little bit of a controversy at the Southern Baptist Convention this last week, among some others that we'll talk about one day. Um, The Father is not part of God, because if he were part of God, then he would not be all of God, right? Jesus is not a part of God, because if he were a part of God, that means you could separate God into his parts, And you could have one part here and one part there. And this part would not be that part. They would be separate. So the Bible says that God is not in parts. The Bible also clearly teaches that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not identical. Identical. So sometimes you hear people just trip up in their own words. And they'll talk about sometimes God presents himself as the Father. Sometimes he manifests himself as the son and sometimes he's the spirit, sort of like somebody changing from one mask to the other. Uh, I've heard people explain it using an illustration of water. Have you heard this before? They'll say that water can sometimes be a solid, we call that ice. It can be a liquid, like a cup of water that you would drink, or it could be a gas, it could be a vapor, steam, but it's all still water. And they'll say that that's a, that's a picture of how God is three in one. But, but no, not exactly, because water can only be one of those things at a time, right? So far as I know, anyway, water can't be a solid and a liquid. It can't be a liquid and a gas. It's one or the other. God is one God, but God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. There's one God, uh, three persons. That's the way we say it. Now, we must remember that the way, we, the way we learn truth, when it comes to Bible truth, when it comes to the important truths of life, 
Remember this church, this will keep us out of a lot of trouble. The way we learn truth is by looking to the revelation of God. Truth is not from our conjecture or our presumption. Truth is not just what I can figure out in my head. Truth is what God's word says is truth. And sometimes there will be things in God's word that don't exactly fit together in my little puny brain, but that's okay. Thankfully, truth doesn't come from here. Truth comes from here. And I can give you a lot of examples. Uh, we could talk about the incarnation of Christ. I don't understand how, how Jesus, who is God, became flesh, born as a baby. I don't understand that. I mean, I, I believe it because the Bible says it. I absolutely believe it. But you can ask me some questions about it that would really embarrass me because I wouldn't know what to say. I've asked myself those questions. I've, I've read books, I've thought, I've prayed, and I still don't know the answers to that. But you know what? That's okay. It doesn't surprise me that my little brain can't figure out some of the things that are true of God. And I am not so arrogant as to think that it cannot be true unless I can understand it. So I just accept the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, just like the Bible explains it. Uh, we could talk about the fact that God is sovereign and that God loves us and that God uh, has blessed us with and, and called us to make a choice for him. And so that's something. I can't seem to fit all of those pieces together. But truth doesn't come from my figuring things out. It comes from the revelation of God's word. So I just believe every verse that talks about it, whatever it says. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we, we talked about the immutable will of God. We said that uh, that God doesn't change. The Bible says God doesn't change. But the Bible also says that if we pray that God honors the prayers of his people and things change when we pray. I don't understand how those fit together, but I believe what my word, what God's word says that I hold in my hands. And so the standard of truth is the revelation, what God has revealed to us. And so the Trinity is uh, very difficult to understand. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I, I hope I understand more about it now than I did a year ago or five years ago. But there'll just be pieces of this that we won't understand for sure this time, this side of eternity, and maybe, maybe not the next. But let me show you, you, you took a glimpse at it a moment ago. Let me just show you a quick little graph that a lot of, a lot of people have used through the years that... As far as I know, it's the easiest to see teaching tool to help us understand uh, what the Bible says about the Trinity. And so you see right in the middle, it says God. There is one God. You got that? The testimony of scripture beginning to end, one God. Now, God is the Son and the Son is God. You see that? You look the other direction, God is the Father and the Father is God. The Bible also says the Holy Spirit is, the, is God, and God is the Holy Spirit. Yet, and this is, this is where it'll bend your mind a little bit, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Now, have you ever seen one of those drawings where if you look at it from different angles, you could see that maybe you just can't make mental sense of how it all fits together. Well, this is one of those things when you look at the meaning of these words, but all of this is what the Bible teaches. Now, here's the point of that. Here's why I spent a few minutes talking about the Trinity. When we say 
God is the Father, the first thing we mean is that God is the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ. I'll give you just a couple of verses. One where, where the Father refers to his Son, Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And so the father looks to Jesus and says, you are my son. And then we can turn to John 17, 25. Jesus says, righteous father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And so here Jesus looks to the father and says, you're the father. So what is the fatherhood of God? What does that mean? Well, first it means that the father is the father to the son, Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to see that it means is that God is eternally the Father. There are some things, and I want to be really careful with my words here because I don't want to say heresy. I want to say something that's not true, but listen closely. There are some things that God has not always been, at least actively. Let me tell you what I mean. There was a time when there was no creation, right? There was no earth. There were no stars. There were no people. There was a time before creation. Was God already there before creation? Yes. The Bible makes that clear. That if you go all the way back to the beginning, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit already there. So there was a time, and we use that word time, you know, with a, with a little asterisk next to it because time is a part of God's creation. But there was... There was a time when God existed and there was no creation. So there was a time when God was not the creator. There was a time when God was not the savior because there was a time when there wasn't anybody who needed to be saved. There was a time when God was not the author of truth because there was not anybody who didn't know the truth. But listen, church, there has never been a time when God was not the Father. Because God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit have always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There was never a time, there's, there's never been any, any situation where God was not the Father. And I think the fatherhood of God is not only a nature of God, it's not only a, a, a way of describing who God is, but God being the father is the most fundamental truth about God. And, and, and I want to be careful saying that because I know God is holy and, and God is righteous and there, there are all kinds of things that have always been true of God. But I think the most fundamental thing about God is that he is the father. And, and I believe that because when God describes himself Fully, when God describes the Trinity, how does he always refer to himself? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. His fatherhood is the most fundamental thing about who he is. Now, we're going to pull these pieces together, but let me tell you the third thing. When we talk, think about the fatherhood of God, we know that God is the father of the world. In some sense, he is everyone's father. Every person is created in the image of God, right? And in that sense, he is the father of every person. So if you are a biological father of biological children, 
Those children probably look a whole lot like you, right? Because they are in some sense in your image. And the Bible says that every person is created in the image of God. And in that sense, he is our father. In fact, it's the image of God that makes us valuable, right? Old people are valuable and young people are valuable. White people, Hispanic people, black people, uh, uh, Asian people, all valuable. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. People who are born are valuable. People who are yet to be born and are living in their mother's womb are valuable. Why? Because we're created in the image of God. Rich people are valuable. Poor people are valuable. Mature people are valuable. Immature people are valuable. People that have a lot of skills are valuable. People who, who may have certain limitations in life are valuable. Because value doesn't come from anything other than the fact that we're created in the image of God. That's why abortion is a sin. That's why racism is a sin. That's why it's wrong to turn our back on poor people because, because all of those are created in the image of God. And so in some sense, God is the father of all people because all people are created in the image of God. But church, there is a sense where God is the father only of his children. God is the father only of those who are in the family of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me. God is our father. God is my father. In fact, the Bible says there are some people that have a different father in a, in a real sense. I'll read to you what Jesus said, John 8, 42, Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God. Jesus said, you're not, he's pointing to some people and he said, you're not children of God. God is not your father because if God were your father, you would love God and you would love God's son, Jesus, and you don't. And so he's not your father. And then Jesus goes on, he's a lot more specific. A couple of verses later, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says some people are children of the devil. And so God is father specifically to those people who are his children. Those people who have been adopted into the family of God. Let me read to you one of my favorite verses, and uh, I'm, I'm studying the book of Ephesians. I'm hoping this is where we'll spend the fall, if the Lord allows. But Ephesians 1, uh, verses 5 and 6 says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved. He has lavished us, which means he has treated us beyond what we deserve, and he has adopted us into his family. We're children of God, the fatherhood of God. So why is, why is this important to prayer? Why are we talking about this while we're talking about the, the model prayer here? Because the only reason we can pray is because he's the father. We, we can't pray because he's holy. We, we don't pray because he's sovereign. That's not what creates prayer. We, we, we don't pray even because he's the creator. We pray to him because he's the father. That's interesting. When you read in the Old Testament, you don't find much emphasis on the fatherhood of God. It's, uh, 
it's there, but, but just a little bit. But when Jesus comes on the scene, and when Jesus teaches the people in the Sermon on the Mount how to pray, he says, you should pray like this, our Father. It's all about, it's all because he is a father and he desires to be a father to us. Now, I, I want to take just a, just a few minutes and I, I want to I share with you specifically how that motivates us to pray. I understand that now the foundation of prayer is that he is the father. The foundation is he is, is fatherhood. But now, how does that motivate me to pray? Well, four or five things. I'm going to go through these very quickly, but I want you to see them. I hope your Bible is still open. I want you to see them here. The first thing that this encourages me, the first way this encourages me, is it tells me that God knows. Because he's the Father, he knows. Now look at verse 8. He says, don't be like them because your Father knows. I pray, I'm motivated to pray because God knows. God knows every situation. God knows every heartbreak. God knows every fear. God knows the past. God knows my weaknesses, my track record. And God knows the future. God knows. What does it mean that God knows right there in verse 8? It, it reminds me that God will never be surprised by my prayer. Sometimes I'm nervous to pray. Sometimes I'm fearful to pray. But God knows. We should pray because God knows. Because God knows. I remember a long, long time ago, I was, uh, I was a kid. I hate for my kids to hear this, but I had uh, borrowed a family car. And I... Uh, lightly brushed that car up against somebody else's car. And, um, and I got home and I was waiting uh, for my mom to get home. And I was debating whether I should tell her. You know, I wasn't thinking well. I was a, I was a teenager. Teenagers, you know, don't think well all seven days of the week. And I was, uh, I can remember fearing, I don't want to tell her. I don't want to tell her. But that should never keep us from praying, because what's the difference? God knows. He's never surprised. God knows. Now, let me show you the second thing. God is our Father, so he knows. Secondly, he cares. And one of these is linked to the other. Go back to verse 8. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need. God doesn't just know in a generic sense. God knows specifically. God knows the things I need. That tells me that God cares for me, for me. Whatever my burden is, whatever my fear is, whatever my problem is, whatever my shortcoming is, whatever my frustration is, God cares for me. It says that God knows what my needs are. God cares. God cares. I love 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Listen to this. Listen to this verse. You've heard this before, but I want to point something out. Maybe you've not noticed. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, you may, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So humble yourselves before God. That generally means prayer, as well as some other things. Uh, and then he will exalt you. He'll take care of you. But here's the, here's the important part I want you to hear. Casting all your cares on him because 
He cares for you. He cares for you. Now, let me show you something. When I read that verse, there's, there's something that just, something I don't like about it. Because, you know, when you're writing something, you don't generally want to use the same word twice. I mean, not real close together. So if you're writing, you know, a letter to somebody or paragraph and you use a word here, you don't want to use the same word again on the next uh, line. And, and so it seems odd here because it ends by saying, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. And, and the little inner grammar person in my head says, God, you should have chosen different words there. It would sound better. You should say, casting all of your concerns or your problems on him because he cares for you. Doesn't that sound better? Then that's a little smoother, gets you a little better grade in the class. He ought to use two different words. But God used the words that God wanted to use, right? And so he says, casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. Listen to what this means. I care about some things. I, I care about my kids. I care about some, some things I fear. I care. All of us have cares. Aren't there some things that concern you, that, that you care about, that things that break your heart? I care about some things. But what this verse says, and it uses the same word twice on purpose, I'm supposed to take my cares, the things I care about, and I need to take them to the Lord so that the Lord can care about the things I care about. Isn't that beautiful? I, I care about some things. I wish I could just open my heart and I could tell you, oh, I'm, I care about this and I'm concerned about this and, I'm, and, 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 I, and I, have a, I have an easy life and the Lord's blessed me. I'm, I'm not saying I've got some great hardship that somebody else doesn't have, but, but all of us, we have things that we care about. And, and because he is the Father, I can take my cares and I give them to him. I'm not just giving him my problems. I mean, you can do that. But when I say I give him my cares and he cares for me, that means I am taking what I care about and I am making it what he cares about. He cares. What does it mean that he's the father? He knows, he cares, his patience never runs out. The third thing it means is that he yearns. For us, he knows, he cares, he yearns. We're still in verse eight. Don't be like them because your father knows, he knows, the things you need, he cares, before you ask him. Before you ask. Well, if he knows before I ask, then what's the point of asking? Why, why is he telling me, exhorting me to pray if he already knows, even before I say it, he already knows? I'll tell you why. Because he still wants you to bring it to him. He doesn't just yearn to know. It's not information that he desires. He already knows. It's your presence that he desires. See, he's a father. He's a father. My, um, uh, my, my, my two kids, the, the two kids I, I like right now, were asking me last night, what would you like for Father's Day? And I said, you know, what I really want is my other kid to be here. Now, if she pops out of a cake or something, I won't be able to finish my sermon. But um, because a father wants the presence. It's not that I need my oldest daughter to come because there's something I need her to do. You know, come wash the dishes or paint a wall. It's, I, mean, I, I don't need anything from her. I just want her to come to me. And so here he says... The Father knows, and he knows what we need, and he knows it before we ask it. 
He yearns for us to come close to him. God's always approachable. He yearns for you. God could have created this whole prayer thing that didn't require you saying anything, right? God already knows. He could have just, he could have just taken out the whole prayer. He could just line out prayer in the Bible and he'd still be a good God. But he, he's a father. If God were just a creator, that's probably what he'd have done. If he were just a king, that's probably what he'd have done. But he is a father. And so he yearns for us to come. I'm running out of time. I still got two more. So um, next, God loves. God knows. God cares. God yearns. God loves. Look at, let's back up to verse six. He says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. See, he loves me. He wants to bless me. He wants to reward me. I think about what Jesus says in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does, does the God of heaven, your heavenly Father, know how to give good gifts to his children? And not just that he knows how to give gifts, he desires to give good gifts to his children. He loves. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means you never have to earn his love. Well, let's stop there with that. God already loves me. I don't have to earn his love so that I can pray tomorrow. Have you ever thought, oh, I can't pray today because I know what I did yesterday? Well, no, if your ability to pray today was based on the quality of life you lived yesterday, you would never get to pray, okay? Because you had never really had a good day. I mean, and you know it, right? No, I don't have to earn his love. He's my father. He loves me. Now, don't tell my kids this, but there's not anything my kids can do that would make me love them less. There are some things that they could do that would make me not love for them to be near me all the time. But I love my kids because they're my kids, because I'm their father, not because they had a good day or a bad day or they did this or they didn't do that. I just love my kids. And my love for my kids is just a dim shadow of God's love for us. God loves. And then finally, God is able. Let's skip down to the first part of the model prayer. Therefore, you should pray like this, our father in heaven. See the word again? Our father. Where's our father? In heaven. Is that true? Now, I'm one of those guys that just believes everything in the book. Absolutely it's true. But is it? I thought God was everywhere, right? Don't we say, you know, God is right here. So did he leave heaven this morning? Is that no longer true today because we're having church? What does it mean that God is in heaven? It just doesn't even seem like a very responsible thing to say. Lord, I'm not correcting you, but, but you're everywhere. You tell us that. This is just going to confuse people. What does he mean when he says he's in heaven? Well, there's a lot of theology there, but, but here's the point I want you to see right now. It speaks of his power. You see, my kids, they have a father in Nacogdoches, and uh, that didn't get them very much. But, but we have a father who is in heaven. We have, if we said that, that the king is on the throne, that uh, Edward is on the throne. What do we mean? We don't mean necessarily that he's on the throne and not in his bedroom. We mean he's on the throne. He has the power. We say the president is in office. We don't mean that he's sitting in his office necessarily. We mean that he has power. 
God is in heaven, meaning he has the power. He is able to do what his children call on him to do. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Because he is our father. He's our father. Now, way over on time. But I want to tell you about something that happened now, 20, 15, 20 years ago. You don't care when. But I was serving in a church in Anniston, Alabama. And we had a, we had a man in our church, I don't know, 55 or 60 years old. I think, I think we called him TJ or TW. Um, he had gone through some pretty tough times. Uh, his wife had died recently in middle age and he just, he struggled to get over that. And there were some problems with his kids. I, I, I won't say more than I should, you know, on something that's going online, but everybody in the church knew he just, life had been hard. He'd been hard for a while, but TJ, that's what I'll call him. Uh, I think it was TJ. He, his, his faith in God never wavered. He was brokenhearted all the time. He was melancholy, but he just had this abiding hope in God. And so one Sunday, I saw on the order of worship, uh, Tom, Grant, you uh, produce these orders of worship every week that tell us what we're going to sing and when we're going to sing. And so I noticed on the order of worship that TJ was singing. Now he was on our praise band. He, he played... Uh, acoustical guitar, sort of stood over in the corner, I can remember. But I didn't know that he, that he ever sang a song. And so I was interested to see how that would go, what that would mean. So we get to that part of the service, and it's just quiet. And he hesitates. And, you know, the tension is rising, especially with the leaders. What's this guy going to do? And So then just in silence, he slowly begins to strum his, uh, his guitar. And then he sings a song with tears just flowing down his face. And it was a song I had heard before, but I had never heard it sung quite this way. And it was so powerful, we ended up asking TJ to sing about every six or eight weeks for the next years in our church. And so I wanna, I'm not gonna sing it, but I want to share with you the words of this song that may be familiar, but I want you to hear them in the spirit of this message that God is our Father. Here's what TJ saying. He says, I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. I have a Father and he calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and he hears me when I call. Let's pray. Father, I know that you're the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign ruler of the universe. But the reason you listen to me in prayer is because you're the Father. Jesus has made a way through his sacrifice on the cross that we can come to you 
May we be people who are faithful to go to our Father in prayer. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.